Hey, Jonathan. Hey, David. How's it going? What's up, man? Oh, not a lot. Well, just having Thanksgiving. <laughs> I love how we always do this, where we end up talking over each other every pulse. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. hey, Don- how? Uh, well, yep. <laughs> well, see, this is the problem of our new format, where we don't do any editing. Hmm. That's true. That's true. Actually, I think it's very nice because it's very in, informal. Yeah, it's more realistic. Super, super, this is how people actually talk. Organic. That's true. That's true. By cutting um, each other off. Ah, yeah, you're right. You all the time. You were in. Okay. <laughs> okay. You had uh, Thanksgiving yesterday. Yeah, American Thanksgiving. Let's be clear here. Yeah. Ah, so sad. I, I'll tell you, man. Yesterday, I received a phone call at three in the afternoon uh-huh. from my family back in Houston, and I was confounded because I was in the middle of writing a paper and I was like, what? <laughs> like I was in, I was in my dungeon, yeah. you know, working, you know, saving away on this paper. And then my, my folks called me at three o'clock. I'm like, why are they at work? You know? <laughs> and it's like a random Thursday. And then it hit me immediately. I was like, oh my gosh, I forgot. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Cause you guys had Thanksgiving like a month ago. Longer. We had Thanksgiving before Halloween. Ugh. That's not okay. So Thanksgiving is like three weeks before Halloween. That's not what the pilgrims wanted. Yeah. <laughs> well, the Canadians, the Canadians here say that it has nothing to do with what American Thanksgiving is about. Uh-huh. And it's like, they say it's about the harvest. Like it's a harvest festival. Yeah. Um, which I'm all for. Like I'm all Theoretically, for. Theoretically ours is that festivals. way too. Yeah, yeah, but I think ours in the United States at least is a little bit more tied to a historical event. Yeah, I heard something it, recently that I don't know if it's true that Thanksgiving as a national holiday was instituted by Abraham Lincoln as a way of unifying people after the Civil War. Have, huh. have you heard that before? I have never heard that before. It makes sense. But I have no way of confirming. Okay. I mean, well, I, you can, I guess you know. I have the internet. <laughs> <laughs> you could just do a quick Wikipedia search on that one. Yeah. But maybe this person um, that told me just found it on Wikipedia. Yeah. Or maybe they yeah. wrote it on Wikipedia. So, it's entirely possible. Uh, so, like, in Canada, they say that it's all about the Harvest Festival. And I just think it's an unfortunate, like, overlapping of the names. Mm. Like, if it's you're gonna, if it's going to be something commemorating something else. Yeah. To call it Thanksgiving and to have it be about turkey kind of makes it difficult to distinguish as a different right as a different event. Do they eat? Um, do they eat turkey? Oh yeah! Oh yeah! That's <laughs> well, kind of like football. When you say football, right. you don't really it's, know what you're talking about, depending on where. Well, you're from. in Canada, there is there is football, but it's it's not even what you're thinking. It's not American football, and it's not soccer. Really, it's American football, but with like a smaller field. Why? Different rules, yeah. It's a completely. It's maybe it's not different rules, but it's at least a smaller field. Is that like the indoor extreme football that they tried to do a couple of years ago? The uh, WWF <laughs> football, yeah. where there was no rules, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um. So, how was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was pretty good. You know, I finally embraced something, David. What? That, What's that? That I've been putting off for a while. I really don't like turkey. And I'm not, oh, yeah? I'm, and I'm not afraid to say, to, t- to say it anymore. Okay, all right. It's just so. What did you it's have just yesterday? Not good. I had somebody made beef. 
<laughs> so I have Thanksgiving beef. <laughs> it's funny that in my brain, like that doesn't seem like I'm opposed to that for some reason. Like, something. About, it's like, well, that's wrong. Why yeah. did you do that? Yeah. Yes, and I mean, there are many reasons why I'm a strange person. I think. Um, Let's count the ways. <laughs> but the two ways that are particular to this situation is that I'm not a turkey fan, and I really don't even like ham. Ooh, I don't like ham at all. Uh, I like other parts of the pig, but like <laughs> the baked, the whatever, you, whatever it is, the glazed ham, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. Well, it doesn't make me throw up or anything. But when I no, eat it, no, no, I just no. prefer not to, not to. Yeah, no, fair enough. I'm the same way with ham. Um, I li- I don't mind turkey, especially the dark meat. But hey, a good Thanksgiving beef <laughs> side of beef. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah, like that could be a new thing. Thanksgiving beef. I could get behind that. I could get behind that. Um, what did you guys do for Thanksgiving? Uh, so we've got same same thing we do for Easter. Uh, we have a big potluck, so the whole community comes together. I made probably my favorite Thanksgiving food: green bean casserole. Ooh. Um, I was kind of going back and forth between whether or not to make uh, from scratch green bean casserole because I saw this really cool video uh, on YouTube. Ooh. And it looked really fun. But you know what? From scratch green bean casserole never is good. So what's the what's the alternative from scratch? It's got to be it just... yeah, canned canned beans, canned soup, uh, and canned. Uh, Onion, fried onions. Canned fried onions? Yeah, little French's fried onions. Delicious. I have no idea what you're talking oh, about. I've never had this. Those are so good. Well, good. So you guys had a good meal. It was like, what, 80 of you? Uh, Yeah, there were some guests, so there was probably about 80. Hmm. Um, well, that's good. I was in school, so <laughs> I had no opportunity to rejoice well, and be glad. Well, we had an extra fall break we had an extra week off of school because of all the smoke mm. um it's been raining dude how's that how yeah how's that been all the uh all the smoke it's over insane there, the fire. so we had a fire so for those of you that don't know out there in listening land there's a pretty severe fire out is it still raging uh you know i don't know it's it's pretty far away like out past sacramento uh-huh um but the smoke it's it's huge i sent you a an image somebody had superimposed the 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 size of the fire over the city of Dallas and it's basically the did size you, of the city of Dallas did you send me this uh yeah hmm. um so it's huge and so we've we just got this incredible amount of smoke um that's really been affecting air quality uh so much so that they canceled school from last wow. Uh, when was it? Thursday. And you've been off all week. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Um, but we started, so you got we got whole- some rain, and so that's helped clear the air. Finally, okay. finally able to open the windows again. Are there a lot of people who have come sort of like fleeing the fire? Oh, yeah. Coming into the Bay Area? Well, the, it was just a really kind of perfect storm of, of tragedy. So we had, this huge fire, which spread incredibly, incredibly quickly. Lots of people died. Lots of people just lost everything um, because of the, the way it spread. 
And then in Southern California, just outside of Los Angeles, right after that shooting in Thousand Oaks, yeah, uh, they had a fire. Wow. And so there was a big wildfire going down there, up here. People were still suffering from the shooting. And so it's just been a mess out here for the last couple of weeks. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. I, I mean, I spent the summer in California, but I didn't experience any, any fires, but it's so, it can be so dry. Yeah. Like all summer long. And so once you get to the fall and you haven't had any rain, it's like everything is bone dry. Yeah. And just, it's like a tinderbox. Everything can just go up and go up in flames pretty quick. Yeah. We went out for a walk yesterday. Um, a couple of us and it was amazing because it's been raining. It was, it was not raining when we, when we were walking, but, uh, it was such a stark contrast between the the moss and the little ferns that kind of were revitalized from the from the rain. So they're super green, super bright, and everywhere. But then on the side of the hills, the grasses was were still bone dry, and you know mm. brown, and looked like they could go up in a in a fire at any second. So just that mm. that crazy contrast was very strange. Well, on the flip side of all of that, here on the East Coast, we had our first real snow last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, we got That's we got terrible. a couple of centimeters of snow. A couple of what? Uh, centimeters, I think. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not following. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how much snow we got, but uh, <laughs> it was it was a pretty good snowfall. And then uh, yesterday, <clears throat> yesterday or the day before yesterday, it got really cold. It was like negative... Negative twelve. Negative twelve. Yeah, yeah. Negative twelve. Like American units. No, in in uh, world units. Because you know what they say about the metric system. Okay, here we go. (laughs) There, there are two types of countries. What do they say, John? There are two types of countries out there. (laughs) Those that use the metric system, and those that have Mm. been to the moon. Living with you for this long, I know all three of your jokes. Like, yeah, I, that's <laughs> one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, I know it's in your top three yeah. of three. Yeah. Um, no, I think uh, so. It was negative twelve Celsius, which I think is eleven Fahrenheit. Okay. Still, so if you can imagine eleven cool. Fahrenheit, I actually can't imagine that. I choose not to. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was pretty <laughs> terrible. Uh, so it was two days ago. It was pretty. It was pretty cool. Um, no, yeah, but the the weather here has been pretty pretty wintry it's getting it's getting pretty dry and bare yeah. everywhere super gray um but yeah we're just kind of gearing up for the end of the semester the season here. Of desolation. are you guys almost done too yeah that's true uh are you guys almost uh done yeah we've only got a couple of weeks left nice it's time to start writing papers finishing up stuff yeah yeah no it's gonna be kind of a grind for me the home to the end. stretch yeah um, so anyway, so you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to go back to. You were talking about making your casserole. Uh-huh. So this has been a new, uh, new thing in my life that, uh-huh. that, uh, I think you, you have, you have been sufficiently a, a source of, you've been kind of a gateway <laughs> into this world for me. I helped you see um, the light. <laughs> yes. I've been spending a tremendous amount of time. Well, first off, I've been spending a lot of time watching uh, Jeopardy on Netflix. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, that is, I finished that is the drug. I've I've never known that I wanted <laughs> so badly. It's like I finished the uh, the '80s champions on this tournament. Oh, you're going through. I think okay. it's season two I'll, on the on the Netflix. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm currently watching season one, which is or the collection one, which is the Tournament of Champions. Yeah, and it is awesome. Like I just love Jeopardy, and it's great because periodically I get that you know that thrill of knowing one or knowing two. Yeah. Um, there was a category in a recent episode that I saw of like where is that in the Bible, and I was uh, like, oh, cool. I totally got this. I totally got this. And the first one was like, okay, <clears throat> I should just pull them up and ask you <laughs> see if you can get them. <clears throat> but the first one was like, um. You know, man and woman were in the garden and the serpent, whatever. <laughs> mm. It's like, okay, I think I know where that is. Um, and then there was a few other, like one of them is like, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Uh-huh. There's nothing I shall want. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty easy. Uh, but then it started getting a little bit like, like one of them was very apocalyptic. And it was one of those things where too much knowledge hurts you. Because I think if you're garden variety person who doesn't know a lot about the Bible, immediately here's apocalyptic. Exactly. And that was the answer was revelation. But I was not confident to say revelation just because I was like, (laughs) oh, maybe I'll say Daniel Daniel, or maybe I'll say, you know what I mean? Or say Luke for that matter. Yeah. Um, Because it wasn't very clear. So that was one. And there was another one that was uh, first Corinthians, but it wasn't like love is patient, love is kind. It was, it was St. Paul saying, uh, <laughs> don't be drunks together. It, no, it was this whole thing about, uh, about marriage. Um. And like, if you're married, like, you know, stay married, but don't worry about getting married. Cause <laughs> like things are kind of like almost over. So yeah, there was a, on one of the episodes I watched, there was a whole section on or category on the saints. And I was, no way. yeah, it was cool. I was surprised at how many, well, it's funny how, <laughs> So you were surprised at how many? You no, no, no. That's not what I meant. It's funny how, with categories that you know, it's like why would anybody struggle with that kind of a question? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you know they go off on these weird maths things that I have no idea. Well, so like there was one question that was in a different category um, of like world geography, and it said uh, this Middle Eastern town is named after the Arabic for house of something or the Hebrew house of bread. And it was a double, it was a double jeopardy, uh, or daily double. It was a daily double. And the guy bet like all of his money <laughs> and he couldn't, he didn't get it. Ooh. He didn't get it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, how is this? Uh, this is not difficult at all. <laughs> what is, what is the city, Jonathan? House of bread. House of bread. Do you not know this? No. Oh my gosh. Well, you are the exception that proves the rule. There it is. I guess. <laughs> Bethlehem, house of bread. Uh, it's not Arabic though. No, so it comes from Arabic house of something or the other, and then the Hebrew translation is house of bread. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I've been doing that, but then I've been also watching a lot of YouTube, and uh-huh. what was mentioned is I've been watching a lot of cooking on YouTube, yeah. which has been awesome, but I'll tell you, I have a little bit of a frustration with it. Tell me. Well, the thing is, is that it gets back to one of these perennial things that we talk about, and that is uh, sort of like vicarious living through <laughs> virtual reality and yeah. i i am a huge fan of the internet and i'm a huge fan of all things that you know show me how to make delicious food but i find myself just binge watching all of these wonderful videos about how to make candy and how to make cakes and i keep telling myself oh i'm totally gonna do that and then you never do and i never i never do <laughs> yeah you know one of the things i can't remember if i've mentioned this before but one of the things that i've picked up this year is I am currently trying to perfect the classic French omelet. <laughs> uh, You're trying to perfect it? Yeah. Well, not like 
remake it, but just try to learn how to do it well. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. I mean, there's only three ingredients. Eggs, butter, and salt. But it's really hard to do well. Uh, and What's I, hard about it? It's You've got to do it over a low temperature. You don't want to overcook the eggs at all. You know, all these... All these all these factors have to go in, go in at play. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was one of my success stories from YouTube cooking is that I saw one of my favorite cookers and he actually had a, a shout out to Jacques Pepe who had, <laughs> <laughs> who, uh, who was one of the old, you know, old timer TV chefs. Um, and that was his big thing. Like, this is one of the foundational things that you've got to learn how to do. Or this is make an omelet. Yeah, this is how you tell if you're an actual, you know, a good a good cook if you can if you can do the simple make thing very well. Then you've got it. What's so hard about it? I just told you it's there's all kinds of it's a very subtle <laughs> it's a very subtle you dish. Men- you mentioned four you've mentioned four things. Yeah. You mentioned eggs, salt, uh butter and heat. Yes. And if you if you go over too much then it's what most people think of when they think of an omelet. This brown rubbery thing that tastes like dirt. Mm, uh, when that's <laughs> not what an omelet should taste like. I've heard that an omelet is something that you can make in a cast iron oh, yeah? uh, on the stove and then finish in the oven. Oh, I guess that could work. So you like sear sear the you know the the bottom of the omelet on the stove. No, nope, you've gone too far already. <laughs> what? There's no searing no involved. Sear. No sear. You <sighs> don't want a speck of brown on that thing. Well, but anyway, it is possible, I think, to take some some of the fundamentals that you start to pick up from watching, and that that that's at least how I take uh, these different channels. Like you you start to learn things. And then you apply them to what you like to cook. Oh, fair enough. And then you start so to kind of build I, a, a, a repertoire. So one of the things that I did, well, the only recipe that I've actually implemented from what I've watched is Alton Brown. Uh, I was I was very interested in learning how to boil an egg because <laughs> boiling eggs is one of those things where it's like you know people say that it's easy, yeah, but I'm not con- I'm not convinced because how do you know how long? Yeah, like is it possible that you can overdo it? You know, you're certainly, there's ways to underdo it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I looked at Alton Brown and Alton Brown was saying, look, it's actually not that difficult. And he said, don't boil your eggs. He said, the way to do it is to steam your eggs. Ooh. And so this is what I've been doing. And I've been doing it for the last couple of weeks is you just put a little, like an inch of water at the bottom of, you know, of a pot. And then you put your steam basket at the bottom. And then you put four or five eggs in there for 12 minutes, uh-huh. cover up the pot, let it steam for 12, and then put it in an ice bath for five, and you're done. They're done? Wow. And what's, what's, what's great about this method is that the peeling of the egg is super easy. Oh. Because you've shocked, you know, when you put it in the ice bath, it shocks yeah. the membrane onto the shell. Nice. Oh, I see. Nice. Because that's the part that makes it difficult yeah. to peel yeah, yeah, is yeah, when yeah. the membrane is different than the shell. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, nice. So you just try to you try to glean whatever information you can from the yeah. show. Plus, I like it. It's, I find it very soothing to watch people cook. 
Yeah, me too. Um, but I will say, like, and I think it's it brings up a thing that we've talked about in the past, and that's a question about virtual reality. Like, this is not virtual reality, but it's approximating that sort of vicarious living through someone else's experience yeah. that I have found just kind of interesting. It's like, I'd much rather watch people play Jeopardy <laughs> than play Jeopardy. Yeah. I'd much rather watch people cook than cook. You know, I'd much rather do all of these things than, yeah. than do them myself. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, th- there's a lot of people that do that. I mean, m- you're 98% of the sports fans out there don't play that sport. Hmm. You know? So, yeah, I think that's okay. Is <laughs> is watching cooking kind of like a sport? I guess it kind of is. You know, there's something exciting about it. You're, you're, it's a spectator sport. Yeah, and I know, you know, people, certainly Jeopardy is a spectator sport. People, people love watching that. Oh yeah, it's awesome. Um, <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, so I don't know that it's necessarily. Oh, I like I like watching this person cook, but I'll I'll I know that I'll never make that. Well, yeah, I guess. But I mean, still, there's part of me that's like, ooh, I really would like to make that one day, and maybe I will. Mm-hmm. And now I've got. Yeah. I know I have this resource that, if this ever comes up. Fair enough. Fair enough. I just thought, I was thinking more in terms of you always harp on a tendency for us to disengage reality and escape into like we talk about a lot of like the disengagement from reality and like like when social media becomes something yeah. that is is an escape or a replacement for yeah. living. Um, well, how could this turn? How could this turn towards that into that direction? Well, I think it it already is approximating that because uh-huh. I spend an hour. I, I spent an hour watching someone make a cake <laughs> rather than spending an hour making a cake. Like there's you watch like, hour the long thing is, cake if, making videos. Well, maybe I watch like <laughs> five cake making oh, videos <laughs> in a row, um, or maybe just the same video over and over. Again. <laughs> I don't know. I should probably make a resolution to actually go and and do some cooking because I'm starting to really like it. Yeah, and you know, there's there's another part that I've been noticing recently. Um, we've got a mutual friend who is in this community who likes to bake breads and cakes oh, and yeah. things. And having watched all of these videos on baking and cooking, I've got a lot of theoretical knowledge. It's not very practical at this point. I mean, I, I, I do a fair amount of baking, just not, certainly not as much as he does. Um, but like, I can have an actual conversation about how to bake something, even though I've never baked that thing. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen a lot of people do it in different ways. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So you know the craft, but you're not you're not a practitioner of the craft. Yeah. <laughs> I I have the equivalent of an extensive Wikipedia knowledge about baking. <laughs> <laughs> what have you baked? I didn't know that you baked anything. You bake? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like to make cakes and some cookies and things. What? Yeah. Since when? It's weird. So, you know, people, especially bakers, like it's a very scientific thing. You've got to have all of your measurements and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have the exact opposite approach really to all cooking, baking included, where it's kind of an approximation. Like this, this looks about right. Uh, <laughs> How does that work out for your cookies? Pretty, pretty well, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, when you're thinking about what tastes good, I mean, it's hard to go wrong. Sometimes you can put a flavor in that doesn't match up with yeah. another flavor, and it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, it's not terrible. And now, the, and now I know, don't put that in that. <laughs> hmm. 
Yeah, I find I, I find cooking well, maybe to be I'll, a more um, relaxed, kind of a fluid thing than super regimented recipes and measurements and yeah, all yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I have thought about making a bread. I think I'm going to try and make a bread. Um, I you the did problem make is bread. that I don't. No, it wasn't me that was making the bread. It was another guy that I live with that makes the uh, bread. You were just taking the bread out of the oven. I was taking the bread out of the oven because he was out <laughs> doing something else. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, the problem is that I don't eat bread. Yeah. So I can make the bread, but I won't. I won't partake. Right. Right, and that's the other issue. Which is sad because bread is delicious, mm-hmm. especially right out of the oven. Mm. Talk about good. Yeah, man. Well, very good. So, uh, your semester's going well? Things are going good? Yeah. Yeah. I gotta start, even though it's the day after Thanksgiving, um, and tomorrow everybody's driving up to Sacramento for a mm-hmm. special ordination. Nice. I still have some work to do today. Okay. I see. But very good. Very good. Well, um, there's a few things maybe that, uh, we could talk about maybe on a little bit more serious note. Oh. If, uh, if you got some time. Yeah. Um, yeah, one thing I was going to get, get your reaction, uh, based on some of the, maybe some follow up from conversation we had a couple weeks ago. Um, how did you react to, uh, the USCCB meeting last week? <sighs> okay. So here's the thing. Uh, I mentioned being a little disillusioned by this whole thing. Just not, you know, the summer that we've had, just not feeling confident that that would work well. And I gotta say, I still kind of feel the same way. A little disillusioned? Yeah, yeah. There were some good things that came out of that. There are some bishops that are that are equally as upset, which is, I think, I've said it before, that the fact that people are angry is what gives me hope. That we know that we're not doing the right thing and that we, we want to do the right thing. So that, that mm-hmm. does give me some hope, um, that something will happen. But yeah, I just got the sense that we're just going to keep on doing the same thing and nothing's really going to change. Yeah. In particular, was there something that like, like when they made the decision to wait on, you know, taking a vote about, Practices like that? Or... Yeah, I mean, I understand it. And from what I've heard, like, the decisions that they would have made were not very well thought out. Hmm. And so in the long run, it, it probably does make more sense, but it just, it just feels like, it just felt like it was the wrong thing to do at that particular time. Because you've got the entire country hmm. looking at these guys and already thinking that they're, that they don't know what they're doing. Right. And so it just looks, the witness factor is not good at this point. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the very unpopular opinion here. Do it. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't know why this is the unpopular opinion first off, but I'm going to side with the Pope. Um, I, I've been thinking recently that there's something uniquely American about some of the anxiety I think that a lot of people have been experiencing yeah. about the last couple of months. Um, now, this is not me saying that Americans are just deluded and don't know what's going on. <laughs> and, you know, like I'm not saying that. Yeah. I know that there's actual crime and actual right. Right. problems that need to be fixed. I am affirming that. Um, and I agree 
very much so that there's an ill that the church needs to excise from its body. Um, very much so. However, I wonder if a lot of the rhetoric or a lot of the ways that people have objected to how the bishops have responded or even the calls for the, the Holy Father's, you know, renunciation of his office. I think there's a lot of like very American political, mm. um, idea of how things should work. Yeah. A very democratic sense of how things should work. So even the very fact that the Baltimore meeting at the UCCB, even the very fact that I know that that was happening, like, why, why did I know that? <laughs> like, I, I would never have known that they would have been meeting because I've never cared before. Right. Um, and perhaps that's part of the problem. Perhaps it's part of the problem. However, it, it felt very much like we were talking about how our Congress mm-hmm. was in session and these are our elected representatives. Because even the way in which some bishops were talking, it was like, oh, I have some, you know, I have some, the people in my flock and my diocese have been asking questions about uh-huh. Carrick, have been asking questions about this. And it right. sounded a lot like if we were on the floor of the Congress, right. they were saying, well, my constituents are really concerned with issue X. Um, and I have to defend them and, and represent them. It felt very much like a representative body rather than the College of Bishops, um, at least in the way that we were speaking about it. And I just wonder if it's a very American political influence and in how we expect our leaders to represent us. Yeah. And also to be accountable to us. Um, I don't, I, I get that this is very controversial and I'm, I don't want to overstate any of this because I don't want to say that we're just fine and we need to let it go. But I wonder if that's playing into this somehow. Like even, even the, the calling for the Holy Father's renunciation, I kind of, I don't think I told you this. Maybe, maybe we talked about this a couple of episodes ago, but I had a moment where I felt a little bit of, I even hesitate to say this because I don't want to come off as I'm, if I'm endorsing cover up because I'm not. But I had a little bit of a moment of like clarity when I started to realize that like when I speak of the Holy Father, it is better to have in my mind the Queen of England than to have in my mind the President of the United mm. States. Mm. Yeah. Does that does, does that make any sense to you? So like, yep. No, I know. I know what you mean. Can you? So what, what do I? Well, can you, I think. Yeah. I think, so I think we're, we're frustrated with the same thing, to be quite honest. Because I think, because you know how I feel about politics, American politics in particular, but just in general. Um, I don't really care for it because at least in the United States, it is becoming uh, a major source of division and hatred. Uh, and I think you're totally right. And I think that's why I'm kind of frustrated with this whole with the Baltimore meeting is because it does feel like a political event. And that's just not what we need to be doing. That's not who we are. Um, and so to, and so to have these figures like, you know, John Paul II was the first Pope to actually like travel around and see people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Benedict and now Francis are, are starting to take up this kind of, political role in a certain sense, this world leader role. And rightly so. I mean, they, they are. But he's the shepherd of souls. <laughs> primarily. Or should I even say that? Right. Is he primarily the shepherd of souls? Or is he a major world leader? Yeah. I mean, he has no temporal authority. Is he the, is he the queen? Or is he, or the king? Or is he the prime minister? 
or the president. Right. And and I think that that's, that's a key point. And I do get, I do understand that politically he does have responsibility over Vatican City or whatever. But I, I do wonder if it's better or at least helpful in some ways for us to think about how he is more akin to the Queen of England in the sense of, and I feel uncomfortable saying this because I don't want to come up as if I'm endorsing, you know, injustice or cover up if, if he is implicated in any of that. I don't, I'm not, I have, I don't know. I don't yeah. know and I don't pretend to know. But if we put this on the Queen of England for a second, is it okay? Would you ever call for the resignation of the Queen of England? Um, it just, does, it seems like a, a miscategorization of. Well, with, after Brexit, the prime minister resigned, right? And not the queen. Uh, yeah, and that happens often, right? The prime minister, you know, comes and goes yeah. pretty regularly, right? But the monarch stays consistent uh, throughout. But what's curious too, though, by comparison, is that the the English monarch doesn't get involved in temporal affairs, right, at all. And so maybe that's the point of difference: is that no one would call for the resignation of the queen because she doesn't bother to, not because she can't, she's not doesn't want to condescend to that level, but just because the daily affairs and happenings on of the kingdom have nothing to do with her. That's what the parliament is for. Yeah. And and maybe this is the problem in the church is that who is ultimately responsible for mm-hmm. governance mm-hmm. in the church? Um, it's the bishops. It's the bishops who are not elected officials. Right. So. Well, know. and that's that's the other problem that we're facing in the United States is that the ones that do need to go. They're not elected officials, and so we can't just, you know, call for their impeachment or whatever. Right. I wonder if it would be helpful to think of, like, what if you thought about the the Pope as a monarch, which I think, in point of fact, he is, um, and the College of Bishops, like an aristocracy. Yeah. Um, or an oligarchy of sorts. It makes me uncomfortable to say any of that, because I don't, I don't know enough about how the church is structured to be able to really comment on this, and I know it kind of sounds a little bit like, a little fatalistic, like, well, we can't do anything. Um, right. I don't think that's true. Um, I think we can, but I just think that it might be helpful to have, like, uh, at least naming the fact that the political structures that we belong to influence the way that we expect our leaders to govern us. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if, as Americans, we've been, like, overlaying a predominantly democratic viewpoint or, or way of seeing governance onto the church and saying... Clearly, you know, any sign of corruption, well, if my if my senator was caught in an affair or anything like that, well, he would immediately resign from his post. And right. And so we're, I don't we're know. calling for the same thing from our church officials. Yeah. I mean, it makes me uncomfortable to bring this up because I don't, I, I get that it can be misread as if I was endorsing something, but I, yeah. I've just been thinking about this some, you know? Well, there, that is the tension, right? Because we, we do not want our church leaders to be morally compromised, right? We don't want them to be living in sin or, you know, certainly abusing anybody, um, sexual or otherwise. And we would want them <laughs> to go, I think. Yes, certainly if they're breaking the law, right? They need to face the consequences that way. But at the same time, it's a, there's a danger in, in expecting church leaders to be somehow without sin. Mm-hmm. Like, the validity of the sacraments don't rely on the personal sanctity of the of the priest. Right. Um, yeah. 
Although the, the objection would be that they're not celebrating the sacraments. What they're doing is governing the church. Right. So, you know, and I, and I think that's the rub. And I think it's one of the questions always raised about the role of the laity and the governance of the mm-hmm. church. And some people, more conservative, you know, views on the sacraments might say that it is proper to the sacrament of orders to govern. And those who are to govern the church ought to be ordained. So the ordination is not merely sacramental in the sense of right. for the sake of the sacraments, right. but it's also for the sake of governance and teaching. Um, I don't know. So, I mean, I think that's where we find ourselves a little bit in, in, in a mm-hmm. hot spot because maybe perhaps the def, like the, the deferral of any decision about how to, you know, implement change in the conference Part of that might have been a reservation on the part of the Holy See, yeah, to 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 muddle the waters of who has governance in the church, uh-huh. yeah. And can you legitimately give power to a group of lay people? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I think you can, but how how is that done? That's the real question. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Well, yeah, it's not always well, like, been look done. Look at the well. parish level. Well, the parish level has parish councils, right? And that's yeah. Those are lay boards that the, that the pastor is on, but it's not the the, pa- the the parish council does not supersede the authority of the pastor. Right. My uh my my pastor at the parish that I work just released this. Um, we've been on this stewardship campaign recently, and he released this flowchart of how the parish works. And he was really struggling for a long time on where he sh- as pastor should go. Is he at the bottom? as a bottom-up model, or is he at the top as a top-down model? Ultimately, he, he, he landed on being at the center, and not because the entire parish revolves around him, but because he's the intermediary between everything that goes on in the parish. You know? hmm. and, and which is also not to say that he's directly manipulating or influence everything that goes on in the parish. Yeah, I... Mm. So, okay, so I think it has to be said at the outset that any sort of model is going to be easily twisted to... Yeah, yes. To, it can easily be twisted, right? Yes. So, like, if if he put himself at the top, then he sees himself as a megalomaniac. Right. If, if he puts himself at the bottom, he's false humility and af- afraid of power. Right. If he puts himself at the center, then he's just an egomaniac right. and he's being manipulative. So, all of them can be twisted, Um I don't think we should be afraid of putting the pastor at the top of that chain. Well, but in actuality, he's not. You know, the bishop is. But he is of the parish. Of the parish, yes. But he still functions at the leisure of the bishop by the permission of the okay, bishop. Okay, fine. Then put the pastor at the top and then put the bishop above him. Yeah. No, <laughs> no totally, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. But by putting him at the center, where is the bishop? Well, yes, yeah, the same problem. Same problem. So, anyway, I mean, I think all of it is to say that there is always going to be this tension about how, and since the council, we've had this difficulty of how mm-hmm. is it that you allow the clergy and the laity not only to coexist, because clearly it needs to be more than coexist, it's also cooperate, but also, right. you know, it, what is it, co, co-govern, co... Well, to go know, back co- to my co- parish again, you know, we've got a brilliant business manager, and she really takes care of the parish very well. Um, and she and the pastor work very closely together. And I really don't see a problem in that model. You know, I think, I think they work very well together and I think the parish benefits because you don't have the pastor trying to do everything himself. Yeah, I think that's true. And, but I, 
There is something to be said, though, about the buck stops with the passer. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it still does. Um, okay, so, but if you take it to the to the conference level, then, you know, you institute some sort of lay review board. Yeah. It doesn't seem like canonically we would have any way of giving lay, the laity authority over the bishops. Well, that's true. That's true. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know enough about it to really comment on that level. Uh, but mm-hmm. internally, so we've got language for this, right? We're supposed to know the mind of our superior. Mm. And that's kind of what I think is going on with this business manager pastor relationship is because she doesn't have to always go and ask his permission because she knows him well. And he, tr- and he and trusts, he her. trusts her to make the right call. And so it's not so much that she's just doing whatever she wants without the pastor's knowledge. Um, but there's an actual relationship. And I think this right. is what, this is why we often get, oftentimes get confused when thinking about kind of the wider church is because we do this as Jesuits, right? We've got, we have our, our manifestations, our, you know, our spiritual conversations with each other and with our superiors. And so, you know, I can trust you to do, let's say we're working together in a parish. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't have to always be there over micromanaging everything. Right. Right. That's just kind of, that's that's just kind of a thing that we do because we have that, that type of relationship corporately. Right. And if, if a priest had that in his parish with someone who was a layperson who was either a business administrator or on the parish council, then there's a freedom there of cooperation yes. that is not, that is not suspicious. Right. Um, now I, I think 100% I would agree that that is necessary. Um, I would also maybe even say like one of the things that we do really well, I think, is also having consultation. Like mm. there is also something there about, you know, consultation with people who, uh, don't make the final decisions, but, you trust to help you make final, yeah. you know, recommendations. Yeah. Um, it is going to continue to be difficult though, just because there's always going to be the struggle for power and power doesn't have yeah. to be a pejorative term. Like it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Power is just a reality. Mm-hmm. Like you have to wield power. Um, it's not about having power that's good or bad. It's about how you wield the thing, right? right? How you, how you have, how, how you manage to use your power and influence well. Um, and I just kind of wonder that in the church, we're still, in a place where the laity don't have power in that yeah. sense, the power to govern. Well, to go, which I'm not saying that they should, but I'm not saying that they shouldn't right. either. I just don't know enough to be able to say definitively. Well, to go back, um, so I think that's the danger, not the danger, but the frustration that a lot of people are feeling towards something like a review board. Because people have been telling the bishops and the priests since there have been bishops and priests what they don't like and what they find um, to be problematic. Mm. And I think we're, we've seen it, you know, especially with, with all of these conversations around young people. It's like, are you actually listening <laughs> to what's being said? And are you willing to do something about it? Or are we just going to keep on as business as usual? Mm. And so we can, we can say that we've got a lay review board, but if we're not going to actually make any change, based on their recommendations or what have you. Now, again, I'm speaking out of ignorance here. I don't know if that's what's happened or if that's what's going to happen. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, I can just, I guess, speak personally. That's a fear of mine. That that will happen. That we would institute some sort of lay review board that would just get ignored. Yeah. Hmm. See, yeah, I, I, I share that, but I also hold the opposite fear, which is I worry that we, that we fall under the temptation of democratizing the church. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, totally, totally. That's a, that's a real, a clear and present danger, and, if you will. Yeah, I mean, democratizing the church or clericalizing the laity yep. or, you know, any number of things. Um, I don't know. So anyway, I, I just wanted to bring all that up just because I, it's fresh and it's new and it's going on mm-hmm. right now, but, in particular, I was just really struck by, I wonder if, if the reason that the Latin American bishops and the European bishops did not agree with a lot of the contest that was coming out of North America. Yeah. Um, when, when the, the Vigano letter came out, I wonder if that was, if there's something going on, on here more mm. than just mm-hmm. ecclesial politics. Yeah. Um, but that there's something to be said about like Latin American politics, European politics versus, Sort of an American way of looking at yep. representative democracy. Yeah. And if, if the, if the USCCB is our house of representatives, mm-hmm. then. I, I, I would be willing to wager a lot of money that many people think of it that way. Yeah. Were I a betting man, I would take that bet. Hmm. You're not a betting man though. No. No, I could care less. <laughs> well, okay. So actually, this kind of, that's kind of a nice segue to something else I wanted to talk to you about. Um, do you have time for maybe one other big topic? Yeah. So this might be a little too big, um, but it's on my mind and it's important. I, and you can veto this topic and we can punt <laughs> to next week. So you, you can let me know. You can let me know. I want to talk to you about addiction. Ooh. Okay. Do you, would you feel comfortable talking about addiction? Uh, Sure. I mean, I don't mean personally. I mean, I don't know. I don't know your life. You don't know mine. But like, what I mean is, just sort of generally, it's, yeah. it can be a difficult yeah, yeah. topic because it gets into well, um, some serious things. Now, the reason I want to talk to you about addiction is because I saw this really great movie that I wish you would watch. Um, it's it's called uh, Beautiful Boy. Oh yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah, I told you to watch it. I know, <laughs> I know, and I want to. So I'd recommend that you watch it and. Frankly, there's not much to like, I mean, the story is very simple, right? And it's not really, there's not much spoiler, there's no, there's no spoiler warning really necessary. Um, are you familiar with the, with what the story's about? No. Doesn't that have Steve Carell in it? Yeah. I mean, would you like to know sure. what it's about? Yeah. Um, I would still recommend that you watch it, even if I tell you what it's about. Um, Steve Carell, it's a true story. Steve Carell's character is an author and, uh, he's a famous author and he has a kid and his wife, him and his wife break up, but he, he takes custody of the kid. Um, and then he gets remarried and him and his new wife raise this kid. Really nice kid, very intelligent, does really well in school. Eventually, um, graduates from high school and gets addicted to methamphetamines. Ooh. And the whole movie is about, um, him struggling with meth and a bunch of other stuff. Like he's doing X, he's smoking a lot of weed. He's hooked on meth. Um, presumably, I think maybe in the, at some point in the movie, he's doing heroin. I can't really tell because I don't know drugs, uh, that well. Um, anyway, so it's the story of him and his struggle against drug addiction and his battle for sobriety. But also, and I think really 
moving and powerful, the story of the father um, coming to terms with his own powerlessness to save his son. And it's deeply moving because like they're the, the father the whole time is like fighting for his son's life and fighting for his son's sobriety. But there's a like a key moment in the movie where the dad himself hits rock bottom. Mm. And it's they almost sort of have this play on like the father was addicted to needing to save face and save his son. Uh-huh. But he needed he needed to hit rock bottom and realize that he was powerless against his son's addiction as well. Whoa. And and there was something there that he had to and he started going to like Al Anon and getting, you know, support for for having someone in his family that was, you know, an uh an an alcoholic and a and a drug addict. Anyway, that's the movie. Um but it got me thinking a lot about addiction, uh, and thinking a lot about how addiction is treated and how addiction is acknowledged. And I don't know. I just kind of wanted to bring it up and see. Have, have you thought much? I have some questions about it, about addiction generally, but I just kind of want to throw all that out there at you and see what. Yeah. Have you put much thought into the like the culture around addiction and like weird addiction recovery? Oh, did you hear that? There's a big old truck outside. No. Uh. Yeah, I mean. I think, uh, you know, we're, we're oversaturated with addictive things in our culture, in our society. Um, not necessarily drugs and, um, and all that stuff, but we've talked about the addict, the addictive nature of the internet, social media. Um, you know, well, we were just talking about food that can be a very addictive thing for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I try to think of, uh, well, ask your questions, because I need to gather some thoughts. Okay, <laughs> so my main question, my main question came, um, and again, I mean, I'll do a little another, like, preamble, I'm not being critical of <laughs> recovery <laughs> programs here. Um, I just have a question about it. Uh-huh. I just have a question. Yeah. Um, cause I think that recovery programs are magnificent and I have a lot of friends who have found tremendous freedom and yeah. healing through them a lot, which is great. Uh, and I approve this message. Um, <laughs> my, my question is on the nature of freedom itself. Okay. And as a case in point, I was talking to somebody who, Mentioned that he knows another person who has been going into, into recovery programs. And that person, that's not my friend, but my friend's sort of acquaintance said that he goes to a meeting seven days a week. Well, that's a lot. And it got me to wonder, is that freedom? Mm. And. Now, now I'm not, I don't want to go so strongly as to say of replacing one addiction with another, because I think that that is right. a very judgmental thing to say. And I don't yes. want to come out that way, yes. but like, I wonder like, to what extent is there, I'll, I'll just put my cards on the table, I'll put my cards on the table. Can a person be free of their addiction hmm. or for the rest of their life, are they in need of that support structure of group? And of, you know, sobriety, uh, sponsorship and all that. Yeah. Or can there be true liberation from the snares of an addiction? Hmm. 
Yeah, well, you know, alcoholics call themselves alcoholics for the rest of their lives, even if they've been clean for 30 years. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, like, even the language of clean means you're dirty. So, I am clean. Well, it also means that you might get dirty again. Yeah. Um, But you're clean, you know, right Right now. now. I I wonder, like, why don't we say that you're healed? Mm, So, like, yeah. So and and I, I get it. I I am ignorant, and I want to learn about this, and I am interested in it because I I have my own struggles of things that I you know do that are not healthy for me. Yeah. You know, I might have a tendency of overeating when I'm stressed or drinking too much. You know, etc. But I I just kind of wonder what that what the psychology is of addiction there. Yeah. Um, especially from a spiritual perspective, like in our in our business, we are very focused on freedom Mm -hmm. like finding freedom and not just finding ways of managing or ways of coping or ways of yeah you know transferring yeah that can be what it seems like a lot of the time they're talking about managing the problem rather than curing the problem Mm. yeah i hadn't actually thought of it that way before but you're right okay so I'm kind of monologuing at monologuing at this point, but like I, I, I can't help but also feel like it sounds a little bit to me like the language of recovery seems to do tremendous good for getting people through the first week of the spiritual exercises. Yeah, where, where the grace of the spiritual exercises of the first week, the man is able to acknowledge himself to be a sinner. And to be known and knowing himself to be loved by God. Yeah. And that's a kind of freedom, right? You name the right. enslavement and you hand it over to God as your higher power. But you're still going to be a sinner for that. True, true. So what I what I wonder is like, is is there something in the recovery program that allows the person to live the freedom of the second week, which is discipleship of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like I wonder if, in the absence of Jesus from the conversation, there there's an invitation to a, a deeper form of freedom that is missing. Yeah, possibly. You know the 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 twelve steps I think are very religious or very spiritual. I don't really know them too well. I wouldn't be able to name them for you. Um, but just from what I've heard, uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. But is it becoming something that's so, that's becoming more spiritual than religious, to use kind of that kitschy phrase? Yeah. Yeah. I just have a vested interest in particular because I'm wondering if there's more that you can offer someone in recovery. Yeah. Like, like if saying good, like you, you've hit a rock bottom, you've recognized that you are powerless over this substance, you recognize that you've handed your life over to a higher power. You've done a moral inventory of your life. You've made amends. You've done all these things, which to me as a Jesuit, it sounds very much like the first week of the spiritual exercises. Uh-huh. Um, but then is there a further invitation that we can offer people who are going through a recovery from an addiction and saying, right. there is the call of the king? Well, it's also interesting to think about the stigma that's attached to people that have gone through a recovery. It's like, oh, well, you know, be careful. He's an al- alcoholic. So don't say the wrong thing or, you know, that kind of, you know, we kind of put kitty gloves on. Or if you know somebody that's been to jail, it's like, oh, well, you know, he's a felon. 
when right, that seems right. like the exact opposite of how we should be treating this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like if we use the language of recovery, then it's like no, that's you're recovered. That's actually Tom or or Bill or you know whoever it is, and not just mm-hmm. the alcoholic. It's there's an objectification that happens there, and he becomes so right. closely I- identified with, um, with the disease or with or with the problem that his humanity is taken away. That, yeah, that might be something that I guess I, I'd like to. Maybe we can revisit this topic later once you've had some more time to think about it. But I, I wonder if, if where I need to learn more is when, when people in recovery talk about disease, like, like in the movie, for example, they would often speak about his addiction to methamphetamines as a disease. Uh Um, and I don't under, I don't understand what that means, uh, from my own experience. I just, I don't have, or my own education, I'd be interested Mm -hmm. to learn more, but maybe that's where I, Maybe that's the piece of the puzzle that I'm missing is that it's not just a matter of you can't be free from that disease. Like if right. you have Lou Gehrig's disease right, right, or something. Right. Um, but maybe, I mean, even in response to that, I would say like, but if we had a cure for Lou Gehrig's, like Lou Gehrig's disease, can there not be a cure for alcoholism? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's controversial to say. I don't know. But I, I'm genuinely asking out of yeah. almost complete ignorance because I, I don't really know how it works. Yeah. Well, maybe this could be part of our homework that we uh, that we do some reading on this topic and, and come back to it. See if we can yeah, continue the I'd conversation. Because like I think it is a, an important conversation that that pe- just people in general don't have often enough. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. It does kind of stay in the shadows. Right. Because it's uncomfortable. I, yeah. And I think that your point about dehumanization and objectification of a person or equating, equating that person with their disease is, is a big part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, let's leave it there. And then we can we can return to this next week. Cool. Uh, cool, man. There is something else that I want to talk about, but we're not going to go in it, into it today. But I do want to leave you with a little teaser for next time. Oh. Oh. Uh, so speaking of the other things, I just finished watching somewhat of a controversial Netflix series. Oh, yeah. Called Sabrina the Teenage Witch or something. It's not the same as the old one. Uh, Dude, but the old one was so good. Yeah. Uh, and you, I'm sure, have heard people talk about it. Mm-hmm. What, have, what, what have you heard about the show? I've heard, I mean, I, I know literally nothing about this show right. except that people say it's demonic yeah. and it's satanic and. Yeah. Uh, so, so I didn't think it was that good personally. Mm-hmm. But I will say, and this is what I want to, want to leave our, our listeners with until next time. <laughs> it's gonna sound strange, but I think the satanic stuff was the best part of the show. What? Yeah. How can you end with that? <laughs> That's terrible. That's yeah. awful. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, just because. Okay, I'll give you a little a little preview. Uh, yeah, you can't end with that. <laughs> <laughs> the show did a phenomenal job showing how hollow, contradictory, and self destructive Satanism is. Because oh. everybody was miserable, and no amount of hail satans was fixing anything. Hmm. <laughs> so that was—I hmm. thought that was a very good thing, and that people okay. people need to see honestly, because we like to throw around, you know, that that kind of nonsense as being, you know, valid or something, but it's it's totally contrary to to goodness. 
Right. It's vapid. It's empty. Yep. It's shallow. Yep. It's, yeah. And that's what it was. Huh. That's what the show was. Cool, man. Well, we both have homework. You watch that movie and I'll watch that show. Yep. Well, I'll watch it in between Jeopardy episodes. <laughs> cool, dude. All right. Good talking to you. All right, brother. We'll catch up next week. Yep. Peace. All right, man. Peace. Peace.